This is the Right Guys Podcast, where we are not afraid to celebrate when the Biden administration gets spanked in court. And now your host, Max McGuire. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Right Guys Podcast. My name is Max McGuire. Doing it solo today, Mr. Producer Josh is sick, so we wish Josh a quick and speedy recovery. Going to be a relatively short program today. Wanted to touch base and kind of go over some developments that are happening in federal court right now uh, along the lines of the Second Amendment. A few really big cases just got uh, decided in the next round. We've covered these cases before, looking at issues like homemade firearms using 80% receivers, things that Throughout history, we're not considered guns. The Biden administration trying to change the definition of a firearm to make it harder to build your own guns. I wonder why he'd want to do that. A major court ruling in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturning that Biden executive order. Also, we have another major decision dealing with uh, pistol braces. Pistol braces, that case has been working its way. There's been a bunch of different lawsuits dealing with pistol braces. Um, I am covered by a number of them because of the different organizations I have membership in. But there is a, a case now out of the Fifth Circuit. Not, I don't think it was an appellate case, but in the Fifth Circuit that instead of protecting people based on what pro-gun groups they're members of, this decision shuts down the pistol brace executive order altogether. So everyone's covered. So you can go and and go out to the lake and and dive down and recover everything that you lost in your boating accident. Kind of crazy, just to talk about that. I guess we can start with that one first. Kind of crazy that so many people voluntarily registered their pistols with the government because the government had arbitrarily declared that they were now short-barreled rifles. Um, talk about it a little bit. Uh, most people know this, but in un, in the U.S., under U.S. firearm law, if you have a rifle with a barrel that is shorter than 16 inches of length, that is considered a short-barreled rifle. And a short-barreled rifle has to go through the same kind of licensing process that you would need to go through if you wanted to buy a suppressor or a machine gun or even a handgun or rocket launcher tank. Uh, the NFA, National Firearms Act process. So basically, you you have an extra super secret background check with the ATF. They take your fingerprints. You have to give them a, uh, a picture of yourself. And it's just a very, very thorough, thorough, thorough background check. The Biden administration was trying to classify everyone who owned an AR pistol or any type of pistol that had a stabilizing brace on the end of it to basically label them as felons for having unregistered short-barreled rifles. Imagine... Just to show the lunacy of this, imagine that there were hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans who owned a gun that came with a letter from the ATF that said this gun is legal to own. It is not a machine gun. And then the Biden administration turns around and says, oh, actually, it's a machine gun now. You're all felons. Go to prison or register your gun with the ATF and we'll give you an amnesty. Well, that's essentially what happened with the pistol brace ruling the pistol brace executive order, and then the ruling that came down through the ATF, the rules changed, except instead of treating every all these guns as machine guns the way they tried to do with bump stocks, they're now treating these pistols with braces on them as if they are short-barreled rifles. This is one of my uh, braced pistols. It is a MP5 variant pistol. 
And this brace is very helpful because, as you can see, it's very front heavy. So shooting it, this rests against my arm to kind of help me manage the recoil a little bit better. And there are a lot of people who legitimately and very earnestly use these pistol braces as they are intended. I do as well. What's been really interesting to see this latest case that came down is one of the, I think at least one of the plaintiffs is an injured veteran, which these pistol braces were originally designed to help injured veterans who have limited mobility, limited use of their arms, learn to shoot heavy handguns again that would otherwise be impossible for them to shoot because of their disabilities. So that's my MP5 with a, uh, with a, st a stabilizing brace on the end of it. That's been legal for me to keep owning it because of the different memberships I have in pro-gun groups. But now with this ruling in the uh, Fifth Circuit, not the appellate level, but at district level, um, there's a nationwide injunction against this pistol brace altogether. So celebrate Palmetto State Arm. Our, uh, Palmetto is already selling pistol brace kits again. Um, we're starting to see the price of AR, AK, style handguns pistols starting to go up the prices plummeted once everyone realized you couldn't easily brace them now prices are going back up so if you are in the market for one of those i would definitely check those out there's still some good deals to be had in the 300 400 500 range in terms of pistols that um that come with braces or easily can add a brace to them so let's uh let, let's dive into this order let me present my screen uh, to, to make sure I do this right. Don't want to share the wrong screen. Here we go. Okay. So th this order came down from one of our favorite judges, Matthew Kaczmarek. Matthew Kaczmarek, if you don't know, he is the judge that the left hates. Hates, 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 hates because he is uh, situated in North Texas. So the way it works in North Texas is if you file a lawsuit there, there's like a 99.999% chance that he gets it. So just as the left likes to forum shop and deliberately file their lawsuits in the Ninth Circuit, knowing that they're likely to get a liberal judge to hear them out, a lot of conservative organizations are deliberately filing in North Texas, I believe Amarillo, Texas, where they are almost guaranteed to get this judge, who is a Trump appointee, and he is an excellent Trump appointee, Trump nominee, uh, Matthew Kaczmarek. He is the one who... Uh, shot down the abortion pill as being a violation of uh, law and previous regulations. Very, very, very good rulings coming out of uh, Kaczmarek's court. Well, here he is again talking about these pistol braces, and he reiterates a lot of what we've already covered on this show because we've done extensive uh, episodes about the pistol brace, about what it means, how it works. Um, but I wanted to just read a little bit about what makes this case in my eyes, a little bit different. When you look at his analysis, he talks about the plaintiffs have a substantial likelihood of prevailing on the merits. That's an important part. That's an essential part of any type of restraining order that you would come from the court. You have to be able to prove that you would be able to succeed on the merits, but also that you would suffer irreparable harm if your motion was denied. Um, so those that's the two two sides of it. It's funny seeing people talk about this. You see what's going on with Michigan. Michigan's uh, football program, sign-stealing. The Big Ten came down on Michigan and suspended their head coach, Michigan uh, University football, uh, Harbaugh, 
there was a fight over the weekend to try and get a TRO, a temporary restraining order. And the Big Ten deliberately fi- uh, initiated their uh, penalty, basically saying that Harbaugh can't coach on the sidelines for the next three games. They deliberately did it on a holiday Friday, because Friday was the observance of Veterans Day, after business hours, when the team had already been on the plane and was going to their next game, making it very hard for the team to find a judge to hear their motion for a TRO, a temporary restraining order. And the temporary restraining order is is an even lower level, evidentiary level, than what we see in these kinds of rulings out of this court. Because there you just have to show that it's possible for you to win, but also that you would suffer irreparable harm. And I was shocked. Don't want to get too much on a football tangent. I was shocked that they couldn't get a judge to sign a TRO because whether you agree that they have a case or not when it comes to the sign-stealing allegations. It's undeniable that Michigan would suffer irreparable harm. More importantly, by stopping their head coach from coaching, they, they would suffer irreparable harm that cannot be made whole through monetary damages, right? So that that's the other part of the standard. It's not just that you would suffer irreparable harm, but even if you suffered irreparable harm, you can't be made whole after the fact. Once Michigan plays the game without their head coach, they can't turn back the clock and give them another chance to play it. Now, Michigan won. It's kind of a moot point at this point. But I say that to explain this concept of irreparable harm because it's very obvious the irreparable harm that will be suffered by these plaintiffs or any American, myself included, owning one of these braced pistols. The irreparable harm is we'd become felons overnight for possessing something that almost always came with a signed letter from the ATF telling you it was legal to own and legal to use as designed. Irreparable harm. Monetary damages can't fix turning everyone to felons and sending them to prison potentially. So that was that's a really important part of, of, of overturning these things, especially before complete uh, hearings on the merits. I wanted to find, let's see if I can find the plaintiffs. Um, Here we go. Uh, As discussed, plaintiffs are three decorated Marine veterans who who possess what are likely to be SBR, short barrel rifles, under the rule. Plaintiff Darren A. Brito is one such veteran who owns a pistol with a stabilizing brace. His pistol, which has a barrel less than 16 inches, was not designed, made, or intended to be fired from the shoulder because Mr. Brito has a combat-related injury to his right shoulder. Mr. Brito uses this firearm for personal defense, competitive sports shooting, recreation with his family, and as part of his employment as a firearms instructor, by the M- certified by the NTA- NRA and the state of Texas. <laughs> I-, I don't laugh at his injury. I laugh at the craziness of the government saying that this Marine is a felon for having a weapon designed to be shouldered when the whole point of him owning the brace is that he cannot shoulder a firearm because he has a shoulder-related injury, combat-related injury to his right shoulder, his dominant shoulder that he would be shooting with. I mean, that right there should throw it all out, right? It should throw it all out. Um. Lastly, plaintiff Gabriel A. Tauscher deployed overseas in support of the global war on terrorism, 
Tragically, Mr. Tauscher was ambushed in 2021 and shot 15 times. He spent 85 days in the hospital enduring multiple surgeries requiring 20 pints of blood. Because his left arm is partially disabled, Mr. Tauscher uses a stabilizing brace to help him fire. He uses his firearm for personal protection and recreation. So right there, I didn't read the middle one because he just says it's, it's safer, which is true. Which true. But here, two of these three plaintiffs have combat-related injuries, which they deliberately bought the pistol brace to allow them to safely and effectively fire a firearm even with those injuries. So what does this mean? This means for everyone, and to, unless this is appealed, and it could be appealed while I'm recording this, so make sure you check, check the way it's going. Up until this point, you had to be a member of a certain group, usually FPC or, or GOA. Some of these different organizations had, had rulings in their favor covering their members. Or you had to be a named plaintiff to be protected, from, protected against enforcement of this new rule turning people into felons for owning something that the ATF said you're allowed to own. Now with this, with Matthew Kaczmarek's ruling, everyone, regardless of whether they're in uh, FPC, whether they're in GOA, whether they're in any of these groups, whether they're a named plaintiff or not, if you have one of these, according to this ruling, unless it's been stayed or appealed, you're now protected and the ATF cannot go after you. It's a good day. It's a fantastic day. So if you've been waiting for your chance to take that braced pistol out to the shooting range, again, make sure you check to make sure as of you watching this, that this is still in effect because these things can change. But as long as this has not been stayed, you're free to use the firearm that you already knew you were free to use, but that the Biden administration threatened to throw you in prison if you dared using it. Good news. Very, very good news. Another, another really big development comes from the Biden administration's so-called frame and receiver rule. This was basically to tackle what they call ghost guns. Ghost guns are really just a scary name applied to homemade firearms. I've made a, a number of firearms myself. Um, I have a whole section dealing with that in my book, The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument. I recommend that you get it. It's crazy to see everything falling into place just how I predicted it when I published this book two years ago. It's also crazy that I probably am going to need to publish a version a volume two just because of how much has changed. Uh, but I was reading through the sections of predicting what would happen with Bruin. And I think this can probably survive for a little bit longer, but a volume two might be necessary. Anyway, building your own firearms is something that's happened in the American uh, all the way back since before we were a country when we were just, um, we were just colonies. This case just overturned the, bra the, the pistol frame and receiver rule. And that was basically just, I, I've covered this on the show before, so I apologize for everyone who already knows what this is, but I just want to explain it for people who don't know. Traditionally, the definition of what constituted a firearm was basically, it became a firearm if it was about 80% of the way completed, right? So if it was 81% of the way completed, that was considered a firearm. But if it was 80% completed and it was up to the user to finish machining and drilling and filing down the last 20% of the manufacturing process, then it wasn't considered a gun when it came into that person's hands. Federal law does not prohibit 
anyone from building their own gun for personal use. Federal law has never prohibited or regulated Americans building their own firearms for personal use. So this was just uh, an expedited way to do it. I find it really interesting. I, I love reading this, this ruling. And, I, I'm, and forgive me, I'm going to make sure I get the, uh, I have to pull up the actual, um, the actual case name. So forgive me as I do that, because I don't want to get it wrong. There's so many of these cases, so many of these cases that are um, making their way through the different court systems. Um, but what this one basically said is that the Biden administration exceeded its statutory authority within the Gun Control Act of 1968. The Gun Control Act of 1968 was the law that gave us the modern background check requirement. It wasn't until the 90s that we got the background check system. But in 1968, that was the law, the Gun Control Act, that stopped you from just getting a gun shipped to you in the mail. Because that was one of the way that was the way that um, JFK's assassin, alleged assassin, was able to get the, his Carcana rifle through the mail without going through a uh, a gun dealer. So there wasn't a background check process at the time in 1968, but it did make it illegal for you to possess a gun if you were a felon. Set up all of the disqualifiers and forced you to buy a gun through a licensed dealer, with a few different exceptions. Um, you could still buy guns from Individual people, private sales, but if you were wanted to buy a new manufactured firearm, had to be through a dealer, and it had to go through that whole that whole process. Um, so, what the Biden administration has attempted to do is they've attempted to take that 1968 ruling, sorry, 1968 law. So I'm still trying to find that that actual um actual case name. Usually I have them, but I didn't actually take the, uh, the PDF. I just took screenshots. What the Biden administration tried to do is say that Congress couldn't have imagined the technology that would come after they passed the Gun Control Act of 1968. And therefore, it's up to the ATF to fill in the gaps and to reinterpret that statutory language in order to make sure um, that it could be enforced. So this, this case is Vanderstock v. Garland. Vanderstock v. Garland. Apologies. Want to make sure I got that right. Didn't accidentally misquote the wrong case. So this was always on very flimsy grounds. Because anytime you have a definition that's been so long standing, it's been in place since 1968. Anytime you have the ATF come in and say, well, actually, we think Congress meant this like 60, 70 years ago. That's a really hard argument to win. And the Fifth Circuit felt that way. Felt that this was a very hard argument for the government to win. This was a part that I, I particularly enjoyed in the Vanderstock v. Garland decision. Talking about how Americans have historically built their own firearms. It says, quote, For decades, millions of Americans have lawfully purchased pieces of metal like those silver ones and worked on them in garages and workshops across the country. Such homemade firearms have a rich history and tradition dating back to the founding. So the old rule allowed Americans to purchase the silver pieces of metal to machine the final 20% of the metal in their homes or garages and thus make 100% complete receivers. An enthusiast or amateur gunsmith might mill the fire control area with a drill press so the receiver could hold a trigger assembly. 
and the enthusiast or amateur gunsmith might drill three holes through the receiver to hold the safety selector, trigger, and hammer pins. And voila, the modern analog to the homemade rifle Daniel Boone's father gave him when he was 12. I like this because I hadn't heard that anecdote that Daniel Boone got a homemade firearm that was made by his father. I completely believe it. But th that's where this rule really comes into conflict with pre-existing law, regulation, and just American tradition. Because remember, after the Supreme Court issued its New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin ruling, what that held was, in order to for gun control to be upheld as being constitutional, you had to find a historical analog that was in place at the time of the founding or the ratification of the 14th Amendment, with deference being given to the founding. So unless you can prove that the founders or the country at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment intended for the Second Amendment to be interpreted the way that gun control advocates want it to be interpreted, it's unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. And here, it seems pretty obvious that you can't just discount centuries of tradition of homemade gun gunsmithing, homemade gun manufacturing, again, for personal use, simply because the Biden administration wants to crack down. And, and the reason that the Biden administration wants to crack down homemade guns is very simple. In a world where there is universal gun registration and the government can go door to door and confiscate people's guns, that confiscation regime could never survive in a country where, America, where there's a significant amount of homemade guns. Because when you manufacture a gun for personal use, unless you put a serial number on it and give it to a gunsmith to work on, that's really the only way I could think of this happening. The ATF won't have your serial number, won't know it exists, right? Unless you serialize it yourself or give it to a gunsmith and have them serialize it and then put it in their, in their logs. But even then, the ATF probably wouldn't have it on their radar quite as yet. To overturn that, it's, it's just, it's very obvious. Gun control, the ultimate aim of gun control, which is a disarmed populace, is not possible if one, Americans own homemade fun, firearms, and two, it is easy for Americans to build homemade, homemade firearms. I particularly enjoyed this Vanderstock v. Garland ruling because it was very clear that the judges involved understood the issue. They understood how firearms work. They understood how firearm laws work. And by understanding how they work, they were able to actually get it right. And I think what this has shown us is that there's two types of judges. Yeah, sure, there's liberal judges and there's conservative judges. But there have been some conservative judges who have really dropped the ball on Second Amendment issues. So I would kind of bifurcate judges into two camps. You have the judges who either own guns and understand how guns and gun laws work, or are okay with learning how guns and gun laws work. That's camp number one. And camp number two are the judges who won't. Have no idea how guns work, have no idea how gun laws work, and are willing to take at face value anything that the ATF tells them because they defer to the ATF as the experts on firearms and firearm law. Now, it just so happens that that camp is the liberals and the camp that cares about how guns work tend to be the conservatives, but it's not always that way. In this Vanderstock v. Garland ruling, is very clear that these judges either own guns, understand how guns work, 
or at the very least took the time to learn how guns work so they could recognize the lunacy of how the ATF was attempting to regulate non-firearms and turn them into firearms. Here's one anecdote I particularly liked. Quote, This makes little sense. If I went to a junkyard and picked up a piece of metal that used to be part of a truck, no reasonable person would say I'm holding a truck because the metal has been formed beyond primordial ooze and hence could be completed, assembled, restores, restored, or otherwise converted to function as either a truck or truck frame. Likewise, if I cut a truck into 100 pieces, scattered them on the ground, and then picked up some, no reasonable person would say I'm holding a truck or truck frame because the piece hadn't been melted down into its primordial state. This is calling... This is this is calling out the argument that the ATF put forward, which was the redefinition of what constitutes a firearm based on the ability for that object to be readily converted into becoming a functional firearm. And what the ATF argued was that the 80% lowers technology had advanced to the point where it was far too easy for Americans to finish them and therefore they should be considered guns too. It's a ridiculous argument. And as the, this uh, Fifth Circuit uh, panel agreed, you can't, nowhere else in society do we let this logic stand. Right? If, you, if you chop up a truck into a million pieces and you pick up some of them, you don't have a potential truck because it technically could be rewelded and put back together. So why would having a bunch of gun parts in your hand constitute a firearm simply because they could be constructed to build one. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they go on. They go on even more to talk about this in terms of other really, really good anecdotes. Um, actually, I think this, this is just the part. Um, consider the lumber in every Home Depot across America. It obviously has been machined beyond its primordial state. Much of it has been pressure treated. And all of it has been cut to specific lengths. The same is true about every screw, nut, bolt in the store. All of them have been machined beyond their primordial states and cut to specified length. Now, if I walk into Home Depot with instructions for making a chair, would any reasonable person say I possess a chair? Of course not. Now that kind of stems, that calls back to the how readily convertible is it? So, but, th but that's the logic behind the ATF's rule. If you were to go into Home Depot with the plans to build something, to build a chair, you were to put all the wood you need, all the screws you need, all the paint and everything on, in your cart, the ATF says you have a chair. But you don't. And everyone understands that you don't. I enjoyed that. They had a third, not to be outdone. They keep talking about this, providing a third analogy, this time looking at bicycles. It says, uh, this is a footnote. In its briefing before our court, ATF attempts to engage in a related hypothetical by arguing that a person possesses a bike, bicycle, when they buy a disassembled one. That is a red herring for two reasons. First, a disassembled bicycle is no different than a field strip gun. The former is a bicycle just as the latter is a gun. Second, the final rule reaches far, far beyond a bicycle shipped with plastic guards attached to the gears and brakes that must be removed before it's used 
To make the analog work, ATF would have to contend that metal machined beyond its primordial state and rubber machined beyond liquid ooze constitutes a bicycle if possessed with a template or instructions for manufacturing the bike. I love how it just keeps bringing up the ooze, ooze. The word primordial ooze appears so many times, so many times in this, I think it's like six, seven, eight times, primordial ooze, primordial ooze. And the argument is very rational, right? There has to be a point at which an object is a firearm. We've had that delineation set in stone for at least since 1968 and probably even further back based on whether or not it can function as a firearm. If you blur that line and make it hard for people to understand where the line is, it does two things. It risks well-meaning people accidentally committing felonies, but it also opens the door for the ATF to keep shifting that blurry line earlier and earlier and earlier in the manufacturing process until they come to you and say, hey, you own, you illegally bought a gun and you look around and you just bought metal ore that hasn't even been refined into an actual block of metal. Without a set line that's enforced and strictly enforced and kept still, there is nothing stopping the ATF from saying that any metal object that is machined beyond its primordial ooze, right? When it's just sitting in an earth without life, molten metal swirling around. Anything past that point is a gun and everyone's a felon. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and and, that's, and I'll, I'll read that part here. ATF's contrary view has no stopping point. For example, ATF says it will regulate, quote, a complete frame or receiver of a weapon that has been disassembled, damaged, split, or cut into pieces, but not destroyed in accordance with paragraph E. Paragraph E in turn states that acceptable methods of destruction include completely melting, crushing, or shredding the frame or receiver. It is thus unclear if any gun part could ever fall outside ATF's definition of a firearm because it technically could be rebuilt. On the front end, anything that has been refined beyond primordial ooze or raw liquid polymer could one day be a firearm. And on the back end, anything that has not been melted down into primary, primordial ooze or raw liquid polymer could one day be restored to function as a firearm. They've created this no man's land kind of catch 22 that you always have a firearm and that even if you destroy it, it could be rebuilt. So you still have a firearm. It, it, there's no way for this to ever work in society. You can't have a law like this. And then another part about the, I, I love the primordial ooze lines quote, the final rule is limitless. It purports to regulate any piece of metal or plastic that has been machined beyond its primordial state for fear that it might one day be turned into a gun, a gun frame or a gun receiver. And it doesn't stop regulating the metal or plastic until it's melted back down to ooze. The GCA allows none of this. I concur in the majority's opinion. So <laughs> I, I love, oh, oh, I love the primordial ooze part, right? Because they, they've they've shown a couple of examples of, hey, you wouldn't say someone has a bike just because they have the plans how to make a bike. You wouldn't say someone has a chair just because they have the wood and the screws and the instructions to build a chair. There has to be a place where you either have something or don't. And this is how you know that these judges actually paid attention 
and know enough about firearms to understand the ramifications of the ATF's logic being allowed to expand and exist. They said, quote, the practical implications of ATF's position are staggering. According to ATF, the word readily means the same thing in the GCA, the NFA, and the final word, rule. If that were true, then millions and millions of Americans would be felons in waiting. That is because the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in America. Almost 20 million of them were in American homes as of 2020. But every single AR-15 can be converted to a machine gun using cheap, flimsy pieces of metal, including coat hangers. That is obviously far easier than the eight-hour-in-a-professional-shop standard announced in Smith to govern ready restoration under NFA. So they don't just recognize the lunacy of trying to apply this logic to anything else in society. They also understand that if the ATF is allowed to use this logic to say that a gun is a gun, if it, if it can be readily converted to be a gun, there is nothing stopping them from using the same logic to turn every American who owns an AR-15 into a felon by claiming that the AR-15 can too easily be turned into a machine gun and therefore is already a machine gun. And congratulations for every AR-15 you own, you're going to go to prison for five to 20 years for each count. Congratulations. So I, I love this. I love this rule. And we can just finish it off on the conclusion of it. ATF and quote ATF in promulgating his final rule attempted to take on the mantle of Congress to do something with respect to gun control, but it is not the province of an executive agency to write laws for a nation. That vital duty for better or for worse, lies solely with the legislature. Only Congress may make the deliberate and reasoned decisions to enact new or modified legislation regarding firearms based on the important policy concerns put forth by ATF and the, vari the various amici here. But unless and until Congress so acts to expand or alter the language of the Gun Control Act, ATF must operate within the statutory text existing limits. The final rule impermissibly exceeds those limits such that ATF has essentially rewritten the law. This it cannot do, especially where criminal liability can, and according to the government's own assertions, will be broadly imposed without any congressional input whatsoever. An agency cannot label conduct lawful one day and felonious the next, yet that is exactly what ATF accomplishes through its final rule. Accordingly, the judgment of the district court is affirmed to the extent that it holds unlawful the two challenged portions of the final rule and vacated and remanded as to the remedy. Great news. It's great news. Because this, obviously, this is a Fifth Circuit appellate decision. So that line right there, the government cannot say something is felonious one day when they said it was lawful the previous day, can be applied to a ton of things, such as bump stocks, which the Supreme Court just agreed to hear the challenge to the bump stock ban. Um, that's interesting. We, it's hard to tell where they're going with that. Um, but it's in order to hear it, at least four justices would have wanted to hear it. So we'll have to see whether those four justices are in a majority because that case actually was against the government. So the government was petitioning to get the uh, bump stock ban restored. So the Supreme Court obviously more often hears government appeals. It'll be interesting to see how that works. But these are two, in the meantime, these are two cases that are worthy of celebration because these show two instances where the Biden administration has quite literally tried to turn law-abiding Americans into felons overnight without any input from Congress, 
simply because they didn't like what the law was. I mean, I, I've made my own guns. This is one. This is a gun that I made myself. Um, this came as a non-firearm. I had to drill holes, file down different pieces, um, and make it. They would want, they, they literally tried to turn homemade firearms manufacturing into crimes. If you dared use the same pieces that you were using the day before. And the government tried to claim, the Biden administration, Biden administration tried to claim that even if you didn't have a completed firearm, if you put all those pieces in the same box, if everything needed to build a gun was in the same box, that still constituted a gun. It's craziness. Craziness. So it is good news. It is good news that this is being overturned. We will keep monitoring and watching this. Um, if you like this information, want more people to hear it so they can understand it, make sure you hit that share button. Um, subscribe, 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 comment, comment, comment. Last thing I wanted to cover before we uh, I sign off for today was um, I love FPC. I'm a member. My membership with FPC, Firearms Policy uh, Coalition, um, has helped me keep my braced firearms this, all this time, which I, I completely appreciate. Um, FPC is definitely one of the more uh, gung-ho Second Amendment defenders. Um, they are more than willing to curse out anti-gun politicians, which more power to them. They've also taken a position of defending Hunter Biden and advocating for Hunter Biden to put forward a Second Amendment defense against his gun crimes that he's been charged with. Go ahead and put that on the screen. I'll go ahead and put that on the screen right now. This was an article that was just published in the Washington Examiner. Will Hunter Biden's fight against federal firearm violations reach the Supreme Court? Now, there's a couple of cases that are working their way through the court system. Obviously, U.S. v. Rahimi, that's the one that the Supreme Court just heard, which was basically a question of whether the government can disarm someone simply because they are accused of domestic violence but never actually con convicted of domestic violence. We'll have to see whether the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court does with that, whether it's a narrow or broad ruling. There have other, also been other cases working their way through the court system dealing with whether it's okay for the government to disarm past drug users, whether it's okay for the government to permanently disarm nonviolent felons. If you were convicted of a felony for, I don't know, uh, some some white collar crime like uh, check fraud, right? It's a really bad check fraud. You go to jail for well to be a felon. You only need to go to jail for one year and one day. You spend you spend one year and one day in jail on a check fraud felony. Does that mean you can never again own a firearm to defend yourself, even though you never showed any violent intent whatsoever? That's the those are the kind of cases that are making their way through the court system right now. Well, we've seen FPC argue that Hunter Biden should kind of follow those cases, hug along the coattails of those cases, arguing that he has in a, he's in a very similar situation. I would personally argue that he isn't. Now, we all know someone in our life who is either a recreational marijuana user or maybe a felon who's completely reformed, turned their life around, and is a very good person. Now, we, we all know people who fit in those kinds of kinds of boxes. Hunter Biden was neither of those. Hunter Biden wasn't someone who, who likes to eat a couple of marijuana gummies to relax at the end of a long week. He, he wasn't someone who was convicted on a nonviolent felony and, and it served 
his debt to society years ago. Now, Hunter Biden was a crackhead. He was a crack addict, coke addict. That's his words. He says it. I believe it. He was addicted to crack and cocaine, and it made him a really dangerous person. So we're not talking about someone who's just a recreational pot user who likes to just chill out on the couch. We're talking about someone who was so high and so addicted to crack that he was not only discharged from the Navy, but once found wandering through a homeless encampment trying to find his next score. Someone who was so addicted that his own words, he used to dig through the carpet fibers looking for little pieces of crack or, or coke that he, could, that he could use and would find Parmesan cheese and ended up smoking Parmesan cheese instead. This is a guy who not only did he participate in the unlawful trafficking of sex workers across state lines, which is a felony. Not my, not my allegation. The evidence from his laptop showing that he was paying hookers to cross state lines to engage in his sexcapades. That's a crime. But far worse than that, something we covered on the show a couple weeks ago, is what crack cocaine did to Hunter's ability to safely handle and store his firearm. You'll remember this text message between Hunter Biden and, and Haley Biden. Remember, on October 23rd, 2018, Haley Biden took, Hallie Haley, she took Hunter Biden's gun out of his car. And we see right here, she explains why. She says, I'm sorry, I just want you safe. That was not safe. It was open, unlocked, and windows down. And the kids search your car. So she was worried that Hunter Biden had left a loaded gun, loaded or unloaded, but uh, accessible gun, unlocked in his car with the windows down in a place that the kids like to go and look for things that they could have found him. Now, Delaware now has a law against this, ironically, but most states in the country have some law on the books requiring that gun owners keep their guns in a manner that will not let kids just access them right away, right? They have to be locked up. They have to be unloaded. They have to be up out of reach. They have to be hidden. You can't just leave a gun around where you know a kid is likely to find it. Hunter Biden did. According to this text message, it was in his car that was unlocked with the windows down. And there was a history of the kids in the family going through his car, searching for it. So his widowed sister-in-law turned lover took the gun from him, we've covered this on the show before, dumped it in a trash can at a Janssen's market in Delaware, and then the gun disappeared. No one knows where it went. I recall, I tell the story to show you that this is not just someone sitting on the couch, eating an edible, smoking some weed, just vegging out every now and then. This is someone who only, ha he only had this gun for 11 days. Just so we're absolutely clear, he illegally bought the gun, and then 11 days later, a family member took it away from him because she was worried that the kids were going to get it because he was leaving it unlocked around them, and that he might use it against himself. He only had this gun for 11 days, and just look at all of the crimes and all of the near misses. Imagine if a kid had found that loaded gun. 
So if the standard in this country is that the government can legitimately disarm dangerous people, people who pose a real danger to themselves or others around them, even if, even if just temporarily, right? A crackhead, a coke addict, who can't even remember to lock the car to make sure that kids don't get at his gun, obviously falls into a dangerous class. If, the, if your drug use, if your drug use means that in the 11 days you own this gun, you left it in a place that kids could get it and a family member had to take it away so they wouldn't, the kids wouldn't get hurt, that retroactively proves that the coke addiction and just Hunter's overall <laughs> persona, I guess, was incompatible with responsible, safe firearm ownership in this country. So there's going to have to be a line drawn here, right? There's going to have to be a line drawn here. If you smoked pot a decade ago and maybe had a, a misdemeanor conviction at a, at a, at a fish concert <laughs> for uh, unlawful possession of a gram of marijuana, right? Does that mean you never again are allowed to own a gun to defend yourself? I think that that fails the Second Amendment test, obviously, right? It get, might get a little different if you were a habitual LSD user 10 years ago because that's a drug that has shown to uh, come up again spontaneously. People can just be going about their life and all of a sudden they get hit with another trip even though they haven't used the drug in decades. That's something we might need to talk about a little differently. But in terms of active cocaine addiction, active cocaine binges, we have to differentiate between the past drug user, the recreational pot smoker or edible eater, the danger that that might pose versus the danger of Hunter Biden naked with hookers doing blow, holding a loaded handgun, which again, images from his laptop show. So I would, I, I, as, as, strong of a defender of the second amendment as I am and as big of a supporter of SPC FPC as I am, I understand where they're going with this calling for Hunter Biden to uh, use this as a defense. I just caution, caution that there is a big difference between um, protecting the rights of uh, recreational drug users who pose no risk to society or past felons who have already served their debt to society and someone who is so drugged out that a gun had to be taken away from him because he left it where kids are known to frequent. Well, that's it for this edition of the podcast. If you like the podcast, again, hit the share button. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We go live on Rumble and YouTube. This edition is uh, pre-recorded because I didn't have Josh, so I was able to pre-record it. But usually it's live. You can check us out on Rumble and YouTube. Also, the audio edition goes out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, and Podbean. So make sure you check that out. Even if you watch the online version, please do subscribe to one of the audio editions. Help us prove the numbers. Help us prove the audience so that we can get more advertisers. We've started to have ads uh, getting placed on those audio podcasts because we've hit certain thresholds. So we really do appreciate all of the listenership and support. If you haven't already subscribed there, please do. Uh, that's it for this edition of the podcast. Josh should be back on Wednesday. My name is Max McGuire. Remember, everyone, that the fight to take back the country is not over yet. But the only way we win is if we all stamp and fight together. See you next time.